morning. That's better. Um, I'm Derek Lane, and this is my family. This is Lindsay, uh, Alyssa, Ava, Audrey, Owen, and Everett. And we're going to be continuing the Advent series this morning in Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, asking, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep in Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Let's pray. God, I'm just so thankful and honored um, to be here worshiping with, with a body, just enjoying our, our newborn king. God, I pray that the awe and the wonder and the majesty and everything that we've proclaimed and experienced through this season just continues through the rest of the year and just throughout our everyday lives. We thank you so much for this Advent season. We thank you most of all for your son. It's, it's, his, it's in his name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lane family. We're in Isaiah 7. Go ahead and turn there. This morning, I wanted to uh, take a minute just before we get started to welcome you. Um, if you're a visitor with us this morning, a lot of times one of the privileges that we have over the holidays is to worship with people that we don't normally get to worship with. And we want you to know that if that's you and you're here, we really count that a privilege. We count it a privilege to, to gather with brothers and sisters before our Lord, knowing um, the unity that we have in Christ that we get to preserve together this morning as we engage the Word. So uh, welcome. Uh, let's pray and we'll begin. Lord, I come to you now humbly as we close out our Advent series in Isaiah 7 this morning. Um, I pray that everyone in this room um, would be humbling themselves before you, Mar marveling at what we've already engaged at the realities of a, a very present king, the realities of prophecies that have been fulfilled, the realities of promises in the future. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised, and without you, we would have no reason to even gather. Lord, I confess my own frailties this morning, and I beg of you to calm my heart. I beg of you to focus my mind. Lord, as a very feeble uh, mouthpiece this morning, I, I don't want to be in the way, and so in front of your people, I humble myself before you and ask that you would use me as you see fit as well. I pray that as a people, we're ready and we're eager to hear from our great God. Lord, we also want to pray for a, a pastor in Caddo Mills. Pray for Trent Brown and his wife, Natalie. I pray for the ministry that they've been doing in Caddo. Pray that you would continue to bless it 
Encourage them in your truth. Keep them steadfast. I pray that they have, en- they have enjoyed you over the Christmas season and that this morning as they gather as a church that they're enjoying you. Lord, we pray also um, for some of our local city government. And this morning, in anticipation of, of hopefully um, planting a church potentially in fate in 2015, I want to pray uh, for the fate um, city government, particularly for Mayor uh, Lorne McGessey. Lord, I may be butchering his name, but you know more details about him than I do. And I pray that you would encourage him in truth and that he would be leading his staff in a way that is a blessing to that community. I pray for um, a future relationship that is, um, that is good and that is a blessing uh, to your people. Lord, as we look at Isaiah 7 this morning, we've got some challenging verses in front of us, and I'm thankful that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have wisdom and insight. I'm thankful that you tell us that we can think over what's been said, and you'll give us understanding. I'm thankful that we sit here as a people who actually can be transformed by the renewal of our minds instead of conformed to the world. Let us heed the warnings this morning. And let us take great, great courage and great um, joy in the promises. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our final sermon in our Advent series. Last week, we considered the already and the not yet of what it will be like when we return to God. Remember that picture that we looked at in Isaiah 35, where At the end, when Jesus returns, we'll be coming up a highway, we'll be overcome with joy, we'll be singing together, and it's this picture of us returning to God. So in a sense, last week's focus was us with God, and this week's focus is God with us. So here's our roadmap for the morning. We're going to look at the text and the context of Isaiah 7. We're going to look at what's being said, who's saying it, who's responding, what was going on during that time. And then we're going to look at five things we can learn from Ahaz and three things we can marvel at in Emmanuel. Honestly, I'm not usually that organized. I have no idea on Christmas week why it has five of these and three of these, but it is what it is this morning. So let us enjoy this clarity. Context and text, five things to learn from Ahaz, three things to marvel at in Emmanuel. So turn to our text in Isaiah 7 if you're not already there. And actually, it was originally verses 10 through 16, which we've already read this morning, but we need to pick up the second half of verse 9 for context, which we're going to come back to. So just mark that in your notes. Maybe make a little, a little mark in your Bible. Chapter 7 comes on the heels of the very popular chapter 6 where Isaiah has his vision of the Lord where he, he says, Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He's looking for a crack in the floor to crawl into because the presence of God has so overwhelmed him. In our text today... God is addressing a king named Ahaz. He's addressing a king named Ahaz and then the kingdom itself. So look with me at verse 10 through 11 first. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shale or high as heaven. Now, before we take a closer look at the text and the context here, who all is involved, I want you guys to consider right up front for a moment what it would be like if the Lord made you this offer. 
Are you facing anything that's uncertain? Are you facing anything that you would like some insight into? Are you facing anything that kind of freaks you out, makes you anxious, makes you um, unsettled? Imagine if the Lord came to you and said, ask of me a sign. Deepest shale, highest heavens. Ask of me a sign that goes beyond the laws of nature. He's giving Ahaz this opportunity to ask of a sign that goes beyond what could ever naturally happen. A sign so significant, so deep, that no one could say, well, you know, when these factors are here, then that could happen in nature. No, he's saying, ask of me a sign of whatever you want and do not put any natural limitations on what you ask. Just think for a moment, before we engage anything else, how remarkable that would be. What would you ask? What sign would you ask of the Lord? Would you ask about details in the future? Would you ask for lottery numbers? Would you ask for insight into struggles that you might have? Would you ask for relief, for a sign of relief? What would you ask for? Because anyone with any doubts, anyone searching for direction, anyone seeking affirmation, um, for any of those, this would be an amazing moment. For the king of kings to say, Ask of me a sign, anything, put no limitations, no natural limitations on what you ask of me. That's what God is coming to Ahaz and offering him in our text this morning. So look at Ahaz's response. Look at verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, is that what you would have said? I probably would have asked something. I mean, that doesn't happen every day, right? Yeah, give me, give me some, yes, uh, let's come up with something good, and I probably would have thrown something out there. Ahaz here says, no, I will not put the Lord to the test. At first glance, this seems pretty noble. Ahaz in this prophecy almost appears to come across as content and humble and unassuming of the Lord. But to really understand what's going on here, we've got to go outside of the text and gain some context. So to do that, turn with me to 2 Chronicles 28. You were probably there this morning in your quiet time. 2 Chronicles 28. Um, turn with me there, and we're going to jump through some chunks of this chapter, 2 Chronicles 28. So God has come to Ahaz. God has said, ask of me a sign, anything. Ahaz says, no, no, I'm good. I will not test the Lord. And so it looks noble. So is it noble? Is that what's really going on? And look at 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Throughout the books of Kings and Chronicles, we see a sad cycle of, of what you've heard referred to from this pulpit as good king, bad king, bad king, good king, good king, bad king, bad king, lots of bad kings. And even the good ones are, are frail and feeble and common. So we see this sad cycle in Kings and in Chronicles, and at this point in Israel's history, Israel has become two kingdoms, and this is important to understand or else you'll just get confused as we read. There's the northern kingdom, which is referred to as Israel, and there's the southern kingdom, which is referred to as Judah, and Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom. Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom. His father is Jotham, and his son who will succeed him is Hezekiah, who we often called the reformer. So let's take a look at Ahaz and see what was going on with that very noble response that he gave to God. Verse 1, 
Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. And he made offerings in the valley of, of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering. Do you hear that? And burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So now we're starting to round out the picture of Ahaz a little bit. He's a bad dude. Not, not good bad, bad bad. He's not good. This guy is, is so far just in these first few verses, he did what was evil on the side of the Lord. He made graven images. He was guilty of idolatry to Baal of all gods, lowercase g. He burned his own sons as a sacrifice. This is the king of Israel. This is not what should be going on. So this is, this is the setting that God's coming in to offer him the sign. Look at verse 16. Read on about King Ahaz. And at that time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria for help. For the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives. In the previous verses, what had happened was the northern kingdom had made a pact with Syria. And they came against the southern kingdom to try to force them into their ways. And they actually carried off 200,000 from the northern kingdom. And as they got near, the wise men and the prophets came out and said, What are you doing? Those are our people. Take them back home. And they actually clothed and returned 200,000 captives. So the southern kingdom is not strong here. The southern kingdom is not doing well here. The southern kingdom is looking at the northern kingdom and they're in fear. And the northern kingdom has made a pact with Syria. And so the southern kingdom, King Ahaz, is saying, well, let me get Assyria on my side. Verse 18, and the Philistines had made raids on the city in Shephelah and the Negev of Judah, and had taken Beth Shemesh, Ajalon, Gedaroth, Soko with its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages, and they settled there. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he made Judah act sinfully, and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So God is punishing Judah because of this bad leadership from Ahaz, because Ahaz is leading Judah to do evil things in the sight of the Lord. And look what it says in verse 20. So Tiglath-Pileser, I'm not even almost sure if that's how you say that, king of Assyria came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and of the princes, and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it didn't work. His plan backfired. It didn't help him. Then look at verse 22. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. The same King Ahaz. It's funny. It's like the same guy is still doing all this turn. Yes, the same king Ahaz. He, he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, well, be, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I'm going to sacrifice to them that they will help me. But they were the ruin of him and, all, uh, and of all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of the Lord and cut into pieces 
the vessels of the house of God, and he shut the doors of the house of the Lord, and he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. and every city of Judah, he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all of his ways from the first to the last, behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. So to summarize Ahaz and his life, he's a bad guy. He's an idolater. He doesn't trust the Lord. He sacrificed his sons. He tried to make a deal with Assyria, and, and they just turned on him. He took money from the Lord's treasury to do it. He broke the utensils of the Lord's house. He closed the doors of the Lord's house to build his own temples, all because he wanted some worldly security, all because he wanted to be seen in a particular light as these other nations were growing in strength around him. So that background information on Ahaz is important because if you just read Isaiah 7, you might be like, he seems a bit, he seems noble, and he is not. This background information helps us to understand better What's going on in Isaiah 7? Turn back to Isaiah 7. And what really lies behind his response to the Lord. King Ahaz is self-seeking. He's the ultimate pragmatist. If a foreign nation was successful in battle, he would just sacrifice to their gods because if it worked for them, surely it would work for him. Ultimately, though, though he was the king of Israel, he wanted nothing more and worldly security in the face of worldly threats. This came up last week, and interestingly enough, it's coming up again this week in our Advent series. He wanted nothing more than worldly security in the face of very real worldly threats. As the king of Israel, he would have had access and insight into the ways of the Lord. He was not foolish to the ways of the Lord. He knew what he was turning from. He had access into the ways of the Lord, but he didn't like the ways of the Lord. He didn't like the Lord's timing. Remember last week where we considered that God calls us to not just trust him in these vague and general terms of sovereignty, but to trust him in the very specific terms of timing. When we look at something and say, man, how much more can I take? God, how much more do you think we can take here? How much more do you think they can take? How much longer, God? And he says, don't just look at me as, and say he's a sovereign God who has a sovereign plan and then try to rush me. Trust my timing. But Ahaz didn't like the Lord's timing. Ahaz was hasty of heart. So when we see his response in verse 12, go ahead and look at it again in Isaiah 7. I will not ask... And I will not put the Lord to the test. You kind of have to change your voice to reread it as a big, arrogant punk because that's what King Ahaz was. You realize that what's going on here is ridiculous. He is utterly fake in that response. There's no sincerity there at all. That's all he's done in his reign as king of Israel is provoke the Lord to anger. And so what he's doing here is actually very arrogant. God is saying, I'll give you a sign. This is the merciful and graceful movement of God that he would come to a wicked sinner who at this point he's still calling his own as the king of Israel and he's saying, ask of me a sign. He's coming and, he, and he's lovingly coming down to him, grace reaching very low. And King Ahaz says, I'll, I'll not take part in such a thing. And in doing so, he's arrogant and he's putting his judgment above the judgment of God. 
He's making it look like, well, God, you're asking this, but by saying I don't need this, I'm going to put myself here, and I'm going to put God here. And he is arrogant, and he is false, and he is self-serving, and he is a pragmatist, and he is one of the worst kings that Israel has ever seen. And the result is that he was terribly unsteady. He's terribly unsteady. Remember I said that for the sake of context, we need to pick up the second half of verse 9. Look at the second half of verse 9. Just right above, probably you have the small um, title that says the sign of Emmanuel. Right above that, the second half of verse 9 says this. Verse 9b. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. King Ahaz is not firm in faith, and because of that, he's not firm at all. He's unsteady. Consider the unsteadiness that has come upon him. His sons are dead because he sacrificed them to a pagan god. The people of his kingdom are dropping by the hundreds of thousands, being taken captive by the hundreds of thousands, unsteady. His deal with Assyria where he took money from the Lord's treasury and tried to pay them off so that they would help him against Syria and the northern kingdom, these two entities that he he feared, it went south. And they took his money and then they turned on him and they afflicted him. He's unsteady. The treasury of the Lord's been looted. The house of the Lord is in disarray. The utensils have been broken. The doors have been shut. It seems like the harder he tries to find worldly security, the more he fails to lay hold of it. It seems like the harder King Ahaz tries to lay hold of worldly security, the less of it he has. I've heard heard Ben use an example of the banana, that you want it so bad, but the the harder you squeeze it, the less you actually have of it. That's kind of what we're seeing here with King Ahaz. And in his distress, he didn't turn to the Lord. He didn't repent, as we're called to. In his distress, it says he became even more faithless to God. So what is the Lord's response? The Lord responds in the next verses, and one commentator has a note saying, refusing to ask for a sign was no way to escape receiving a sign. And look at the sign that the Lord responds with in 13 and 14. And he said, hear then, O house of David. So God has gone from offering this to King Ahaz, God has gone from speaking to King Ahaz to then... um, turning to the house of David, the the southern kingdom, the nation, and saying, Here, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? He's saying, For so long, you guys have neglected the prophets. For so long, you guys have neglected those who are the mouthpiece of truth. And today, God comes to you and gives you this offer, and you are going to, to provoke him as well. You weary men, is it too little that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What an unlikely time to make such a massive birth announcement. This is hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. As you were reading through this, you might be like, well, how does this all connect? This seems weird. It is kind of weird. It's a really dark time in, in Israel's history, and God comes in and gives this sign of this birth announcement in such an unlikely place. The northern kingdom of God, the people of Israel, 
are largely apostate, having turned from God to such a degree that they would attack and take captive their fellow Israelites in the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom is being led by a worldly king who's leading the nation to turn from God. Ahaz has rejected the offer of a sign from God. So God says, you know what? I'll give you a sign that goes beyond the bounds of nature. You think I can't preserve my people through these worldly threats? How about this? A virgin will give birth to a son who is 100% God and 100% man. There's your hope. The sentence I just said, you don't have a parking place for that thought. That's be, like, I, I just made a statement that is beyond the bounds and the laws of nature. There's never another, like, I don't have any examples or comparisons to give you because this is the only time that this has ever happened. That a virgin conceives a son who's 100% God and 100% man. And this is what is supposed to encourage them as they look at the threat of Assyria. This is what's supposed to encourage his people who truly trust him as they're looking at their king and saying, our king is a loser and he's leading us astray. He's shut the tabernacle doors. He's thrown away our money. He's broken the utensils. He gave our money to Assyria and Assyria turned on us. So for those who are truly trusting God, this is a massive Birth announcement. Then God goes on to explain the miracle of God taking the form of flesh. Look at verse 15. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. It was Jewish custom to give a newborn curds and honey before they ever tried to nurse. I didn't know that before this week. I had to read that in a commentary. And then I read it and I thought, I don't understand that. That seems totally counterproductive. You're going to give a kid honey before you're trying to get him to nurse? I've seen how hard it is to get babies to nurse. You're going to give them honey? I don't get it. But that was the custom for every Jewish child, to give them curds and honey before they tried to nurse. What God wants them to see may sound very unimpressive to them. I'm struggling through preaching this because I feel like maybe it sounds unimpressive to some of you. Your Savior will come in the form, the Savior that will save you from Syria, your Savior who will save you from the northern kingdom, your Savior who will restore the tabernacle and restore the years that the locusts have eaten is not exactly what they were expecting. The form is not what they were expecting. The timing is not what they are expecting. Your Savior will be a little Jewish boy. Your Savior will be a little Jewish boy, born of a virgin, who will go through the same rituals as every other little Jewish boy. And not only that, but he'll learn how to refuse evil and choose good. I was trying to think, well, how long does that take, right? How long does that take? And if you're sitting here thinking, ooh, I've got a question about age of accountability and all, just email me. It's not fitting for the sermon right here. It's a rabbit trail. But if you have questions that come up in these next two verses, feel free to shoot us an email. Actually, email Ben, and he will respond in a like manner on age of accountability and all things related. But here, I was thinking through this, and I thought, you know, I'm sitting there looking at my son as I'm putting him to bed last night, and he's three years old. And I'm like, he knows the difference between good and evil, he's a sinner. So there may be times where he chooses what's wrong. 
but he knows how to choose between right and wrong. He's not utterly foolish to what's good and what's bad. And he's three years old, and he's ornery. He's ornery as all get out. But he, could, he still knows the difference. He still knows if he does something to his sister, like this has been Christmas week where everyone has new gifts, and, and it's just this awesome opportunity for a little brother to really bug his sisters by taking their stuff and running and smiling and flashing his big dimples. He knows how to choose between right and wrong. He doesn't always do it because he's not Jesus, that's for sure. But he knows how, and he's three years old. So why does this matter? We'll look at verse 16. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The land he's referring to is the northern kingdom and Syria. You dread Syria and the northern kingdom. And what he's saying here is this. God is making a comparison that he wants the nations to see. In the same way that it takes only a few short years for a child to learn between good and evil, so in just a few short years, these nations that you view as your biggest threat, these nations that you fear, these nations that are a real threat, Syria and the northern kingdom, will be brought to nothing. I can look at Henry and say, Four years ago, he wasn't alive. Three years ago, he was born. And here at this point, he can tell the difference between right and, right and wrong. And God is saying, I want you all to know that in that time span, these nations that you fear will be, what does it say? Deserted. Like, not just weakened in their strength, but laid waste. Deserted. These nations that you fear will be brought to nothing. And your Savior, your Savior that you're to anticipate will come in the form of a child born of a virgin who, when he is present, God is present. This verse is a very troubling verse to many of the ethnic Jews and ethnic Israelites because it talks specifically about a virgin birth, about a Messiah who is God with us. You can't dismiss there's so many things that you cannot dismiss because of the fullness of this phrase. A son will be born of a virgin. He'll be 100% God, 100% man. He'll be God with us. He will take on flesh. And so this is troubling to many Jews. But for those who are to be encouraged by this, be encouraged. The form of a child born of a virgin, when he's present, God is present. That's what Emmanuel means, is God with us. So that's our text and our context. Now, what can we learn from Ahaz? What are some things we can learn from Ahaz. Well, you may have already picked up on it, but number one, Ahaz had no eternal perspective. When I first began ministry, I got some, um, some wisdom from a, an older guy who had been in ministry for a while. And he said, you know, Scott, one of the best things that you can do is to have a continual awareness of God's presence and an eternal perspective. And a continual awareness of God's presence and an eternal perspective. And that has served me well through the years. It's helped me through times where there were some very real struggles. And what Ahaz failed in is he had no eternal perspective. Eternity is supposed to change everything. We are created as eternal beings in the image of God, and our souls are eternal. Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity into our hearts. In losing sight of eternity and an eternal perspective, Ahaz 
lost sight of his need for God. If you get so caught up in the here and the now and what's going on now, and you lose sight of this eternity that's been prepared for you by a Messiah who was born of a virgin, you will lose sight of your need for God, just like Ahaz. All temporary circumstances must be informed by an eternal perspective. It's like when you get a new set of lenses. I got these lenses from, from Dr. Ketchum, shameless plug. Um, and when I put them on, I view everything through these lenses. And that's how it's supposed to be with this eternal perspective. The eternal perspective is supposed to be like a set of lenses that you look at all the temporary things, the trials, the very real threats, the things that are going on, the hardships, and they are informed and they are tempered by the set of lenses that you have called an eternal perspective. So Ahaz did not have an eternal perspective, and we should. The second thing we can learn from Ahaz is this. He desired worldly security and worldly comfort in the face of worldly threats. I was talking to Lindsay about this last night, and she said, man, that sounds like Esau, doesn't it? I was like, ooh, that does sound like Esau, who came in from hunting, so famished. All he saw was the problem that was right in front of him, that he wanted some food. So he traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. That's hasty. That's someone who just looks for worldly security in the face of a worldly threat. And you know what kind of stew it was? You know what the Bible says it was? Red stew. Just red stew. It wasn't even like a tomato basil or something awesome that you could be like, well, I get it. Sometimes I crave that. No. Just red stew. I want to ask you, and as I ask this, I really want to encourage you to think about your own circumstance. Is there any trial or uncertainty that makes you so distressed and so uneasy that you would be willing to settle for worldly security over the eternal promises of God. Because the reality is there's no trial that you face that God hasn't given you an eternal promise to comfort you with. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to take these eternal promises and match them up with whatever trial we're facing. What are you going through? What's going on? Go to this sea of promises that God has given you and match them up so that you can hold fast to the promises. So is there anything where you'd be willing to settle for worldly security over the eternal promises of God? Are there any trials that you're not matching up to one of God's promises? If so, I encourage you to heed the failure of Ahaz. Heed the failure of Ahaz, who was never able to lay hold of worldly security. Do you know why he was never able to lay hold of worldly security? Because it wasn't there to lay hold of. It's not real. It's fleeting. It's false. It's fake. Just as soon as you think you have it, it's gone. He worked insanely hard to lay hold of it and was never able. And heed his failure as in pursuing the worldly security, he let loose of the promises of God. He was the king of Israel. At the beginning of the chapter, God addresses him as one of his own. By the end of the chapter, God turns to the nation to address them because even their king has turned. He was the king of Israel. The promises were his to hold and to cherish. And as he looked at this worldly security that he wanted so bad in the face of worldly threats, over time he slowly but surely just let loose of his grip and dropped all of the promises of God because they didn't matter to him anymore. 
The third thing we can learn is that he didn't trust God in the specific terms of timing. Ahaz thought it would be better to make an alliance with Assyria than to trust God's timing. An alliance with Assyria. Assyria hates Yahweh. Assyria hates Yahweh. He has has shown where his allegiance is by making this deal, or trying to make this deal, by even failing to make this deal. He doesn't trust God's timing. He's saying, no, I need Assyria. I've got God, but what I really need is Assyria. Is there any area of your life where you're saying, I've got God, but what I really need is, you know, you fill in the blank. What is implied here is that God will always sustain his people. God will always sustain his people. Now, you may be thinking, um, but some of them died for their faith, right? Did he sustain them? I'm telling you this morning, God will always sustain his people. And you may be thinking, didn't you talk last week about some who lost their lives because of their faith? Did he sustain them? The answer is yes. God is saying that it would be better to die faithfully than to live faithlessly. God is saying that it would be better to die faithfully than to live faithlessly. He's saying to Ahaz, it would be better for you to be killed by Syria or the northern kingdom than for you to make a deal with Assyria and turn from me. Only a God who's conquered death can make such a promise. Guys, if we don't believe this, it makes a big difference. Do you believe that God has conquered death to such a degree that you believe it is better to live, to die faithfully than to live faithlessly? Only a God who has conquered death can say that because those who lost their lives, those who were beheaded, those who have, have, have been slain because of their faith, they were immediately welcomed into eternity because God conquered their death. They didn't have to experience the sting of death because Jesus Christ conquered it for them. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because only a God who has conquered death could make such a promise and actually expect us to believe it. Fourth thing, this one's really given me pause this week. This has been one of the hardest stinking weeks to prepare a sermon. We left last Sunday after I preached and started traveling and went to Dallas and Waco and back to Dallas and Frisco and back to Dallas and Greenville. And I got four little kids and we spent so much time putting junk together that we just got. Like I think when we got home, like I had to take my car as like a sleigh, just to put all the junk in from the grandparents and the aunts and uncles and all this stuff. 19 trips I made from my car to my front door as I was unloading the bags and everything. And what I realized was, gosh, it was just a week of, I mean, I sat down with my son and at the end of it, and I said, son, do you know what Christmas is about? And he looked at me and he said, getting gifts? I was like, dang it, dang it, dang it. I was so frustrated. It's like, is it anyone's birthday, son? He goes, oh, yeah, God's. It's like, okay, I'll take it. But it, it was just, we're so inundated with this worldliness. We're just so inundated with this celebration that just sort of goes along with the culture. And I don't want to be the guy who stands up to preach on the Sunday after Christmas and make you feel guilty about all the cool stuff you got. Go enjoy it, but enjoy it rightly. 
Because here's what we learn from Ahaz. He never outright said he despised the Lord. He just so deeply desired worldly security that he made one decision after another after another that provoked the Lord to anger. Do you see what happened there? You never see a point where he says, I, the king of Israel, despise the God of Israel, and now we're going to do some stuff that's stupid. He just so desired worldly security. He so desired what the world had to offer that he slowly but surely let go of the promises of God and made one decision after another decision after another decision that just provoked the Lord to anger. Showed that his allegiance was not to Yahweh at all. Turn to James 4.4. 4. James chapter 4. I want us to look at a few verses from other parts of Scripture here because this warning against desiring worldly security and desiring worldly comfort is very real. And we live in a very consumer-driven culture where we can be privy and part to things that we don't even realize we're a part of. And there's warnings in Scripture that help us. And what I want you to see in these warnings is, 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 is a thing that helps you to hold on to promises. God's warnings help you to hold on to promises. God's warnings help you to not make the same mistake that Ahaz made in letting go of God's promises. So here's one warning in James 4, chap, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What I want you to notice here is it's not enmity with God that leads to friendship with the world. That wasn't necessarily how it happened with Ahaz. As you read his story, as you go through all of the stuff in Kings and Chronicles, what you see is it was this friendship with the world that he desired that that obliterated his relationship with God. And so here we see it's friendship with the world, this desire to make himself a friend of the world, actually makes you an enemy of God. It's not enmity with God that leads to friendship with the world. We have to keep a close watch on where we're investing our time, where we're investing our money, what is important to us. I want you to know that this verse is so difficult to me because we're not supposed to be miserable people who hate the world. I ordered a book this week that was, it's a book that's been written about enjoying God's gifts um, with him as the giver and enjoying the world rightly with the right perspective because there's so much shame and guilt that goes in this area. People look at this and say, well, I had a great Christmas, so am I, am I supposed to feel horrible about it? I got my kids some cool stuff. Am I the devil because I went to Toys R Us and spent 100 or 200, 300, whatever dollars? No, but, but this helps us. Remember, use this as a tool to, to help you not lose hold of the promises of God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Turn to 1 John 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 15. 
do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Ahaz did not abide forever because he made a decision to stop doing the will of God so that he could embrace the things that were passing away along with its desires. Never forget that this world is not your home. Just as soon as you forget that it's passing away with its desires, you will be conformed to it rather than transformed by the renewal of your mind. Our hope every morning that we gather here, every evening that we gather here, Sundays, Wednesdays, whenever, is that you would be genuinely transformed by the renewal of your mind. But if you lose sight of the fact that this world is passing away with its desires, what will inevitably happen is you will be conformed to the world and their desires will become your desires and the promises of God will not matter. You will let go of them the way that Ahaz did. So do the will of God and abide forever. Never forgetting two promises. I don't want you to turn to these, but I do want you to write them down in your notes. If you don't take notes, you should. Everyone should take notes. But I want you to consider these two verses because what I want you to do is go back and visit them in your small groups and as families. These two promises. The first one is in John 16, 33. You can turn there quick if you want, but I'm just going to read it. It says this. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Emmanuel has overcome the world. And then in 1 John 5, 4, a promise for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. He overcame the world, and if you've been born of him, you overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Which leads us to our fifth thing. Ahaz was not firm in faith, so he was not firm at all. Do you believe this as reality defined by God? Sometimes we have this view of reality, this view of the temporal, this view of the eternal that we just kind of put together over the years. But do you believe that God says this is reality as I, your creator, define it? If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. What I mean here, and the question I want to ask is, do you compartmentalize your life? Do you think that faith is one area and work is another area? That faith is one area and parenting is another area? That faith is one area and finances are another area? Do you compartmentalize like that? Or do you view faith as that lens, that eternal perspective that you view everything by? Learn from Ahaz. Firmness in faith will lead to steadiness in other areas of life. This isn't a health-wealth gospel. This isn't turn to Jesus and everything will get better, but I believe there's a promise here that says firmness in faith will lead to steadiness in other areas of life because it leads to faithfulness in other areas of life. It doesn't mean you'll be rich, but it means you might be poor and faithful, which is better. Firmness in faith will lead to steadiness in other areas of life. When you trust the promises of God that find their yes in Christ, you'll find hope and improvement for your marriage, for parenting, for work, for finances, for relationships, you name it. But on the flip side of that, 
If you forsake and you ignore the promises of God the way Ahaz did, and you seek your own worldly solutions to your hardships, what you'll find is an unsteadiness across the board. And it's an unsteadiness that is unsettling, and it's an unsteadiness that is oftentimes unbearable. So those are the things we can learn from Ahaz. That was very practical things. The rest of the sermon is not practical at all. We're just going to marvel. The rest of the sermon, we move on from the practicals. We're going to prepare to take the supper. What I want us to do is marvel at three particular things in Emmanuel. Because that's what was promised. The virgin shall bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. God wants them to know that while he's with them in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 7, as, as Yahweh, one day it will be an even greater presence when he's with them as Emmanuel. It will be a closeness that they have not experienced, but that they should anticipate that will help them to get past the threat of Assyria, and the, past the threat of Syria, and past the threat of the northern kingdom. And so let's marvel at Emmanuel, as we close our Advent series this morning. First, marvel at the presence of Christ. Please marvel at the presence of Christ and don't ignore the presence of Christ. Emmanuel means God with us. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then in verse 14, God says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. That's meant to be an encouragement to you. God wants us to know that his presence among us was prophesied hundreds of years before his birth. God wants you to know that his presence among us was prophesied hundreds of years before his birth, and is intended to reveal his glory and give us hope. As sure as we worship together this morning, guys, God is with us. He's enthroned on our praises. He hears our prayers, and he greets us with eternal promises that find their yes in Jesus. He is not here just to provide you some things you might need. His presence is all about relationship. That's why he calls you to repentance, because repentance gets in the way, or sin gets in the way of your relationship with him. His presence, him being with us, him taking the form of the flesh, is all about relationship that we desperately need. This morning, the, our verse for the day that I, I read um, every morning when I get going was Isaiah 41.10. It says, fear not, Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For us this morning, we should marvel at the presence of Christ. Let us also marvel at the sufficiency of Christ. In a dark moment in Israel's history, God saw fit to provide his people a sign, and the sign was Christ. What I want us to see this morning as we marvel, and it takes work to marvel. I want you all to know that. Part of me just wants to scream a little louder right now because that helps you to marvel. Yes, look at Jesus. But it takes work to marvel because I'm talking about a little baby in a manger. I'm talking about someone's prophesied hundreds of years. I'm talking about concepts that are biblical and theologies and doctrines that are hard to wrap our heads around. So marveling takes work. So marvel at the presence of Christ and marvel at the sufficiency of Christ. 
God saw fit to provide his people in Isaiah a sign. And the sign was Christ. In this dark moment in Israel's history, Christ was sufficient for those who feared Assyria. It was Christ who was sufficient for those who feared the northern kingdom. It was Christ who was sufficient for those who feared Babylon and for those who feared the uncertainty of being overthrown and taken captive. Christ was sufficient for those who feared how they might be wronged because of who they followed, because of who their God was. Christ was sufficient for their hope hundreds of years before he took on flesh. For us today, he has accomplished what was prophesied. For us today, he has accomplished what was prophesied. He was born of a virgin. Marvel at this. Marvel at the sufficiency of Christ. He was born of a virgin. He ate curds and honey. He nursed like every other little child. He learned how to refuse evil and choose good, and he did all of that without making the mistake of choosing evil and refusing good. He did all of it without sin. In being present with us, Christ wants you to view him as sufficient. In moments where we feel weak and uncertain about what we're facing, Christ gives us a promise in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Go ahead and turn there. I want you guys to see this. I want you guys to underline this. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Is Christ sufficient? Yes, marvel at his sufficiency. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. When? What's he talking about? What is he addressing? He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My encouragement to you this morning is boast in your weakness as you marvel at the sufficiency of Christ who took on flesh and who is our strength, whose strength is made perfect in our weakness. And finally, I want us together as we prepare to take the supper to marvel at the kingship of Christ. He was such a better king than Ahaz. Don't lose sight of that this morning. As I was reading through and making my notes, it was difficult to refer to Ahaz as the king of Israel because he was so sorry at being the king. He was so terrible. He didn't set an example. He turned to worldliness. He forsook the ways of God. He led other people to do the same terrible stuff he was doing. And I'm just sitting here saying, that guy does not deserve the term king of Israel. Which led us to this point this morning where we can marvel at the kingship of Christ who was such a better king of Israel than Ahaz. In all the places that Ahaz failed, Christ succeeds. In all the places that Ahaz failed, Christ succeeds. Ahaz killed his own children. Christ gave his own life for his children. Ahaz lost sight of the eternal promises, while Christ, in light of the eternal promises, for the joy that was set before him, 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ trusted God's timing. Christ never fell in love with the world, and Christ was firm in his faith until the end, never turning from the will of God, but making it his life ambition and goal to only do what he was sent to do by his Father. Jesus Christ is such a better king than King Ahaz. Turn to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, I thought it would be fitting here at the end of our Advent series to look at Revelation chapter 19 and marvel at the kingship of Christ. We're going to close our Advent series by anticipating what will happen in the future as we marvel at our coming King, Emmanuel, God with us. Look at Revelation 19 verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Remember John 1? He was the Word, the Word was with God, and then he came to be with us, and his name, who's called the Word of God, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, the Assyrias, the Syrias, the northern kingdoms, the Babylons, the Egypts, to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury, the wrath of the God Almighty, And on his robe and on his thigh, big tat, his name will be written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is our king. He is such a better king than Ahaz, and he is present with us. So we marvel at the presence of Christ, we marvel at the sufficiency of Christ, and we marvel this morning at the kingship of Christ, anticipating when he will come back and do the work that he has promised he will do as he takes us into an eternity that is more wonderful than any of us can wrap our heads around. My hope for you through this entire Advent series is that you would hold fast to the promises of God, enjoying the not yet, right here in the middle of the already, as we have been so blessed in Christ, as heaven is spilling over and giving us glimpses and insights into the ways of God and the ways of Christ as we experience in the already a taste of what will be in the not yet. Let's pray. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. We say it over and over again because you show us over and over again. I'm thankful that you did not leave our forefathers with King Ahaz but I'm thankful that in the midst of that dark moment, you prophesied through Isaiah and revealed what would happen in the fullness of time, what you would bring to us in Christ. Lord, help us to see him as sufficient. Lord, I beg of you to keep us from turning to the world. I beg of you to help us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we are not conformed to the world. Help us never, ever, Lord, to 
seek worldly security in the face of worldly threats, but to view those worldly threats through the lens of an eternal perspective where we know how the story ends. We know what eternity holds because we know the promises of God. You are so good to us. Lord, help us to really think on that as we distribute the elements this morning and take the supper. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned this last week, but I've never, never had a sermon where I thought, oh yeah, yeah, I'm holy enough to preach that one. I got this. But these sermons in Isaiah, man, they seem so high, so lofty, so eternal, so beyond what we've ever seen, so beyond what we've experienced that I feel like I'm just jumping and grasping. And so I don't know if I've ever been more more hopeful in what Christ could do doing his people. Over the holidays, my son, he's, I mentioned he's three, he was wrestling with a five-year-old who was about a foot taller than he was. And my son really thought he could take him. He just kept spider monkeying him, just jump on him and take him down. And he really, he thought he could do it. Had no idea how easy the five-year-old was going on him. And I just thought, gosh, that's the sermon. These sermons have felt like, I'm just kind of trying to Spider monkey the sermon. I don't even know. I'm trying to jump on it. I'm trying to wrap my arms and my legs around it and get it. And it's just so, so huge. But then, but then that should cause us as we take the supper to marvel that God would share something so remarkable. That God would bless us so abundantly in Christ that he would go to such lengths, hundreds of years, before his birth to prophesy and to share with us the good news. That he would give us the spirit to understand it all. How we could be encouraged in his presence. I really I want us to take this supper hum- humbly. I want us to humble ourselves before God and know that what he has accomplished for us in Christ is so huge. I can't do it justice in the preaching. I can't do it justice with intonation or with details or with examples. The greatest sermon that's ever been preached doesn't come close to what was actually accomplished. So humbly and with hearts that are marveling at the sufficiency and the presence and the kingship of Christ. Take and eat. Take and drink. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, your ways are higher than our ways. I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes this morning, Lord, that you put eternity into our hearts. You've created us to want to know every detail from the beginning to the end, yet you created us so that we could not know every detail from the beginning to the end. And you did that 
as your word says, so that we will fear you. God, help us to fear you rightly. And help it to be a fear that is comforting. A fear that makes us want to pursue holiness in a way that we've not previously pursued it. Lord, keep us from the arrogance and the foolishness of Ahaz. Lord, I thank you for all the helps that you give us. Lord, I consider you going to Ahaz and making him the offer that you made him. I consider how we get to take the supper this morning. It's a help. It's a weekly reminder that the next time you take it will be with us. It's one step closer to eternity. You give us baptism. You give us the word. You give us prayer. You give us one another. Lord, we are among the most blessed in all the earth because Christ is our king. Thank you for coming as Emmanuel. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Lord, for desiring a relationship with sinners. I pray that these sinners would rejoice in that and tell others so that they can follow suit. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.